the core, these are similar issues, you know, fearing one another and hating one another, not welcoming one another. So we have to somehow overcome and see what Christ has done when, when Jesus walked on earth. You know, he didn't build these walls. He he actually broke down the walls. You know, the wall between the the, the Israelites um, and the Samaritans and the woman, etc. So I think, if anything, we have to kind of uh, walk in the steps of Jesus and try to become who Jesus wants us to become. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff. I'm a pastor and author and your host. And today I have an interview with Dr. Grace Jason Kim, uh, who I met at the Festival of Faith and Writing back in April and uh, was just such a great person to meet. Um, and uh, she has written numerous books uh, and is a professor of theology at the Earlham School of Religion. Uh, we talk in this interview mostly about one of her latest books called Healing Our Broken Humanity. Um, and so this interview is uh, is a bit of a heavier one than maybe we usually have on the show, but it is so important. Um, she, uh, Grace doesn't pull any punches. She um, goes right to uh, some difficult places that she sees in our society and culture um, of places where uh, there is this brokenness that we experience as human beings. Uh, she's not afraid to use words like sin and repentance and lament. Um, so words that sometimes we shy away from, she kind of leans into these and uh, encourages us to think through what our communities might look like if we really started to uh, live as the new humanity in Christ. Um, so some deep theology here, um, but also you'll find um, parts of this interview, much like her books, are very accessible. Um, and uh, and she was just a, such a pleasure to talk to. There was so much, um, so it's kind of a longer interview today. Uh, and so I encourage you to stick to the end of it Um where we get into some of the the processes and some of the spiritual practices that she discusses in her book. Um, we get that towards that near the end of the interview. Uh, and I'm really hoping to be able to have her back on because uh, some of uh, some of the other things she's written about, um, I know uh, you'd be really interested in as well. Uh, so anyway, we'll just jump into this interview and uh, and I hope this is helpful for you today. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Grace Jason Kim, and I'm just so happy to have you here, Grace. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on your podcast. So and I'm glad we met at the Festival of Faith and Writing, and we're all connected. We're both Canadians, so very excited and delighted to be on your podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it is great to have you here. Um, just so our listeners know, uh, Grace is... Associate Professor of Theology at Earlham School of Religion, and is the author or editor of 15 books, which is a lot. And thank you. And the latest two are both out this summer. Um, and so I'll just let our readers know what those latest two are. Uh, okay. The Homebrewed Christianity Guide to the Holy Spirit. 
Uh and healing our broken humanity practices for revitalizing the church and renewing the world. And, uh, and that second one is the one we're going to talk about the most. um, And it was also co-authored with Graham Hill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just uh, on the subject of books, I have one more coming out in the fall called um, Intersectional Theology. And that's co-written with Dr. Susan Shaw. So that'll be coming out November 1st. So then it'll click over to 16 books. Yeah. So excited. (laughs) I never thought I'd go past like five. So this is uh, very exciting for me. Well, that's yeah. uh, that's really. Um, I mean, I would just love to talk to you about uh, writing and publishing because it's pretty, that's dear to my heart as well. But uh, yeah, we could do that for one episode. I would love to do that. I think sure. so many, as we met at Faith uh, Festival, of Faith and Writing, so many people are interested in writing, particularly those of faith and how we write our spiritual understandings and our theology. So yeah, we could do that one episode. Right. Okay, that sounds great. Um, but today we are going to talk about healing our broken humanity. Um, can you also just mention like who is Graham Hill? How did you get connected yes. to him? And okay, uh, sure. To write this yeah. book together. Uh huh. So he teaches theology um, in Australia uh, mm-hmm. at Morling College, and um, he is the founder of um, Global the Global Church Project. And he got a huge grant, and I think he went around the world. Well, I don't want to say the whole world, but, you know, Africa and I think parts of South America and um, Asia and and um, Europe and U.S., so not every country. But um, And he got this grant to do some interviews. So he did a video interview of certain key theologians um, during the six months. And you can view all the videos online at the Global Church Project. And so he reached out to me many years ago um, that he'll be coming to the U.S. So we did an interview together. Um, we connect, we stayed connected and we thought, why don't we work on a project together? Um, so we've been discussing and then we ended up writing this book. So it's very exciting because sometimes you talk about it and then nothing happens. But it's very exciting when you talk about it and then you bear fruit to this book, um, Healing a Broken Humanity. Mm-hmm. So he's... Um, still teaching in Australia and I'm here in the U.S. So that I think that makes the book so interesting because there's so many um, examples in the book and he brings in the Australian context and I bring in the North American context. Yeah, it was so. actually really great to read that those sections um, mm-hmm. being uh, in Canada um, and not really knowing much about Australia. Uh-huh. It was really neat uh-huh. to read Graham's uh, uh, portions in the, in yeah. the book. Um, so I did. And I've never been to Australia, so oh. I'm hoping that one day we'll be there. And um, you know, I've watched movies and documentaries of some of the things that happen in Australia, but to have um, Graham contribute that section, those sections, and his experiences into my own, I thought it really enriched the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I really love the book. I should say, by the way. Um, oh, thank uh, you, thank you. Of, and all right, <laughs> just the last couple of days, kind of finishing it uh-huh. up. Um, uh-huh. And it was challenging. Um, it was uh, and and but just really great. So I'm I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this. Um, but we won't have time to get into everything that's in the book. People should just go and buy it. I mean, that would yeah. be the easiest way. Um, and it's to... a practical book, so actually, you kind of need a copy of it because of the appendix at the back. Yeah, to help you kind of live out some of the things that we're describing. So it's a book. Um, you know, you can read it as an ebook, but it's better if you have it as a hard copy, so you can actually use the appendixes at the back because yeah. it's a very practical book. So uh, I'm yeah. hoping that people will be getting a copy. 
And I think as well, like I could see this be a really useful book for groups to use. And there's a lot yes. of good resources and tools in the book. Mm-hmm. For- yeah. So that's what we're hoping. That's what we had it in mind when we're writing the book that churches and, and groups are uh, and then we also kept in mind the individual that you could do it as an individual um so we always kept that in our in the back of our mind as we were writing the book yeah. and we came up with those appendixes yeah. yeah that's that's really good um you start uh the book really with a call to reimagine church and so right in that uh, first chapter um you write or maybe Graham writes, one of you writes, uh, <laughs> calls us to reimagine the church as the new humanity in Jesus Christ, um, which is right from Ephesians chapter two. Um, this is about learning together and anew about injustice and division in the church and the world. It's also about learning mutually and afresh what it means to be the new humanity in Jesus Christ. Um, so I just wanted to start with that because that seems to be kind of the heart of what the book is about. Uh, why did you want to focus on this particular way of thinking about church as the new humanity in Jesus Christ? Well, um, I mean, on the basis is that we're individuals, but uh, we need community. So even as Christians, you know, many days I would just love to live by myself and not be distracted by others around me. Uh, just be an island um, to myself and just do whatever I want uh, by myself. But in reality, as Christians, we all belong to some faith community. We can't worship by ourselves. We need others in community. And, uh, you know, we need each other in so many different ways. So um, the church is still a very vital uh, part of our Christian faith, you know, with the movement of um, religious, but I mean, spiritual, but not What's the faith? What's the phrase I'm thinking of? Spiritual but not religious. Yeah, spiritual but not religious. You know, that sometimes when you hear that and and when people reference it, it feels like, you know, as long as I'm okay, it, you know, it feels okay. But I think um, within the Christian faith, the community is so important. We're accountable to the community. We worship together. We need to be church together because that's what Christ had called us to be, the church, the body of Christ, uh, when two or more are gathered. So when we're thinking about that, we really need to kind of reimagine what the church needs to be. You know, my own personal upbringing, I've um, kind of put a little bit in this book, but throughout my other uh, 14 other books, they're kind of peppered in there and through my blogs, et cetera, of my own upbringing. But for a person like me who um, came as a young child from Korea, a child of an immigrant, for immigrant families, um, the church is kind of, um, it, it can be many things, but one of the things it becomes is like the social club. So we go there and um, we get, we meet friends, we, um, keep our culture, we eat our foods, uh, we connect, we help one another, etc. And I think that's great because that helps us and it sustains us um, as we feel so lonely in a new country, um, kind of losing everything from your old country. But it has to be beyond that. Um, it can't be just this kind of um, ethnic enclave where we just um, come together as people who are so similar to us, uh, only those who we like. Uh, we want to worship with. Um, it can't be like the social club where people just come together once a week to um, have fun with one another or, you know, catch up with the latest gossip. I think church is beyond that, but in some ways it has become, it has been reduced to something like that. So we really want people, the readers, 
and those in the community to rethink what the church um, is about and what it needs to become. You know, the church is forever reforming. The church is growing and it's being transformed. And I think a lot of it, um, you know, the spirit is upon us and the spirit is moving us. So it's an exploratory um, chapter of how we can reimagine the church and how we need to kind of, if we've fallen behind or fallen back from what the church is supposed to be, that it will convict us to kind of come back to how we can kind of push the church in the right direction. You know, there's so many churches around the world. Some churches are doing it right, some aren't. So um, it's really to kind of lay out the foundation that even as individuals, you know, the book is called Healing Our Broken Humanity. Even as individuals, if we're broken, you know, we are still part of this community. So it has to kind of help one another out. We need to heal ourselves and heal also the community or the faith community or the church. So it's kind of all um, tied in together. Um, yeah. So how do you how do you understand like what do you when we're saying uh, we need to try to get, understand what it means to be the new humanity in Jesus Christ? How do you understand what that what that phrase is like? What is it? What is the new humanity in Jesus Christ, and why is that central to the church and to and to Jesus? Like shouldn't, yeah. shouldn't I just pray to Jesus and be saved? And okay, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't think we have the exact solution of what it means to be, um, you know, what it is a new humanity. The book is exploring and we're trying to come from our different perspectives. Graham from Australia and the problems that exist in Australia and me, you know, I grew up, I was born in Korea, but I grew up in Canada and then now I'm living in the States. I've been here, um, I think 14 years or so. So exploring, you know, the church is not a building, but it is a collective of human beings. And, you know, there is this brokenness in our society and us as human beings. Um, you know, it's very biblical. We have sinned. We have fallen away. Uh, we want to become new in Christ every day. That was one of the other kind of things that Graham and I were talking about. What does it mean to become new in Christ um, every day? So we have all this brokenness. You know, we t- in the book, we cover lament and sin. I think we really need to be convicted of the wrong that we have done, not just against God, but against each other. So there is this brokenness and we need to acknowledge it. I think some of us are just happy with what is happening in our society. We just say, oh, it's just societal problems. We as Christians don't have to deal with it or it has nothing to do with sin, but it has everything to do with sin. The, the, the brokenness uh, when we sin, we're not just sinning against God, we're sinning against each other. And um, the book also, um, I don't know what chapter it is, you might know it better. Um, I do bring in a little bit about the Korean concept of Han. And this is not the first time I brought it in, I bring it in my other writings too. But the Han concept, which is very um, difficult to translate into the English language, as many terms are, you know, we, it's very hard to translate certain words into different languages. Mm-hmm. But the concept of Han is um, this idea of um, sinned against. So, you know, we experience a lot of pain. So, um, for example, if you skip a meal because you're so busy, you may be suffering a little bit, but that's not being sinned against. 
when there are systems set up so you don't have enough food to eat, so you're going hungry or you're starving, that creates this unjust feeling or this um, sin against understanding because these systems are set up to cause poverty or the systems are set up to cause racism or the systems are set up to cause sexism in our society. So when these systems are set up, then, you know, people are experiencing this understanding of the sinned against. So this concept of sin and and the need to repent is very important in our understanding of kind of building and, and uh and healing our humanity. Because it's a recognition that we um, participate in this. If we don't speak out, if we don't try to change uh, the problems in our society, then we are participating in it. When we see um, people going hungry, you know, today in the U.S., I'm not so sure how um, big it is in the in Canada and and beyond. But in the US, um, you know, we have the Poor People's Campaign, you know, that was started by Martin Luther King, um, is it 50 so years ago? And now Reverend Barber and Reverend uh, Liz uh, Theo Harris, they've picked it up and, you know, really challenging the government, challenging Congress to change the systems that are set up to cause poverty. We can't fight against the poor, but we can fight against poverty, the systems that cause this, because the gap between the rich and the poor is just getting bigger and bigger, particularly here in the U.S., when the social systems um, that are so good in Canada don't really exist here. So people are going homeless, people aren't able to feed themselves, and we need more food stamps. So the cycle of poverty um, needs to break. So, you know, Han and this really being convicted of how we are participating um, with the sin against, against our neighbors, against our brothers and sisters, we need to recognize. So, you know, two, two ministers speaking out against poverty and many ministers and other um, communities of faith, mostly Christian, but there are non-Christians and different people from different faith communities participating, and many of them are being arrested uh, for social disobedience. And I think, you know, when when we need to speak out, we need to speak out. So I think the broken humanity, you know, the individual is tied in with the community and the church. So I think it's a it's a more holistic approach that we're trying to take in the book, recognizing that the individual. Um, is a collect, uh, you know, the, the community is a collective of individuals. And as individuals, we sin against one another. And as community, we also sin against one another too. So this recognition and understanding that these are all tied in together and we need to do something to break this cycle. Yeah. Um, part, a big part of the book you're touching on so much that's kind of woven throughout the entire thing. Um, yeah. But uh <laughs> One of the things that I really felt was that you did an excellent job of um, talking about sin in such a way that you're talking about it in a really big way. Like, I don't know how else to say that, but but you're not just dealing with personal uh, one-to-one, you know, I yelled at my wife and we had a fight and there's some sin in there, but you're dealing with the brokenness that results through systemic sin that's present in our in our social social structures um and i thought i really liked how that was done because you're not doing that in such a way as to say um and so 
now I want the powers that be to read my book and then they'll all come to an understanding of how they should really be, be behaving. But you're actually trying to equip communities to how can we live out a different reality. And I think that's where I think the connection was about how are we a new humanity in Jesus Christ is that we're going to try to reflect the values or reflect the way that Jesus is structuring this new community. How do, how do we live that out as a church? That was the sense that I had in the book was to, to say, well, how do we live in such a way that we're going to recognize that racism, for instance, is present in the church, mm-hmm. but how do we start to live in a way that we're, we're going to try to structure ourselves um, in our communities where racism is not like that, that where we're identifying with Christ and that's our unity while at the same time recognizing that we're broken and, and there's racism still there. Yeah. Um, And that's challenging. Like, I think that's a real challenge. Yeah, it's a big challenge. And, you know, it wasn't easy to write the book because, uh, you know, in so many ways we do participate in it too. So, um, you know, Graham is a white male. um, So he shares his difficulty and how he has the white privilege. So, you know, we, we... it was not an easy book to write because we are convicted as we wrote of how we as individuals can participate in, in this systemic problem. And, you know, the church, you know, not all churches will recognize that racism is a sin or sexism is a sin. They, they think it's like some divine um, ordination that some are better than others. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not convinced that we're writing to everybody that understands that these are acts of sin. So, you know, we do lay it out. We want people to be convicted of it. You know, when we look at the whole scripture and how, you know, God, you know, God loved us so much that he sent his son into the world. When we think about those passages and how God loves us, God didn't just selectively say, I just love Americans only. Well, we didn't. Well, America as it was never existed during the biblical times anyway. Um, the natives existed, but, you know, as we know it today. So I think somehow, you know, we have misread scripture. We have kind of um, misconstrued the understanding of the gospel message that God um, prefers one over the other or, you know, women are less human being than men. So all these systemic things that we participate as individuals and as churches, I think we really need to be convicted. So that's what the lamenting is. We can't lament anything and and, and feel horrible of, of what we've done unless we recognize that it is sinful. So many of us may just throw it around saying, you know, that's just something that happens in society. We can't do anything about it. Um, right, or that systems yeah. are, are value neutral. Right. Yeah. So, uh-huh. so I think there's yeah. quite a bit of that. That religion is another is a sphere of life, and mm-hmm. so religion can speak to me personally. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to hear a message, and I might I, if I'm convicted of anything, it might be just my personal mm-hmm. three things that I did badly this week. Yeah, and and, and then I'll ask yeah. for forgiveness for those, and yeah. I'm okay. But uh-huh. but I'm not going to think about the the big problems that I see on the news. 
Yeah. Wow. And I think Western society um, has perpetuated or kind of encouraged that type of feeling. This kind of, as long as I'm okay with God. So it's this individualness and all filial piety, as long as I pray and I ask for forgiveness and that's fine. I think when you look at it from an uh, Eastern perspective where community is so vital, I can't emphasize community um, enough from the Eastern perspective, you know, from East Asia, from Asia, we just, we rarely say I in a, in a lang- in our sentences, you know, in the West, everything is about I, you know, I went to the store, um, you know, I, I had a meal. We, we rarely use that pronoun I, we'll just say, um, to the store, you know, we don't put, I went to the store. We just say to the store, you know, that's it. Or it makes sense in the Eastern, um, in, in our languages, but in the West, I think just so much emphasis on the individual that we kind of forget, you know, when we look at the Exodus story in, in the scriptures, if God didn't really care about the situation that we found ourselves in, for example, the situation of poverty or the situation of racism or sexism or even homophobia, those situations, then why would God have called the Israelites out of Egypt? God cared for the, God cared about the context. He was worried about the context. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. He loved he loved the Israelites and he wanted to bring them out of slavery. God is concerned about the situation and the context that we find ourselves, that God called them out of slavery. He brought them out of slavery, you know, brought them out. They went through the, the Red Sea, et cetera, et cetera. I think sometimes we're so focused on the individual, as long as I'm okay, you know, feeling a piety, as long as I confess, you know, I worship, et cetera, then everything is okay. It is not okay. We live in community. We need to kind of understand this we-ness. You know, I talk about a bit of it. I touch upon it in, in the book too. The Korean term is uri, which means us or we. We rarely use the term I in the Korean language. And I give the example, you know, when you're married um, and you have one child, I never say my child in Korea. We say our child. Mm. We never say my husband. We say our husband. Uh, we never say my father. We say our father. Mm. Um, everything's kind of a plural because it's a collective. You, it, the individual is not as important as a family or the community. And I think that may help us in the Western world to understand how, you know, focused we are as, you know, as long as I'm okay, that's not right. It's not just I'm okay. It is the other has to be okay. So that's why I think that being convicted of our sins that we commit to one another is so important in healing our humanity, healing our individual selves so that we will be convicted and we lament the, the, the pain that we have caused one another. And then we can kind of move on mm-hmm. and, re- and into repentance and reconciliation and hospitality, mm-hmm. etc. The nine things that we've uh, laid out in the book. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's really important to go back to scripture as well, like you did, like going back to the the story of Israel. And I think mm-hmm. I think there's quite a bit of, um, oh, but with Jesus, now it's only about personal salvation of individual souls. Yeah. And yet Jesus mm-hmm. didn't actually behave that way. Like Jesus formed a community around him. Oh, yeah. Um, and then when you look at the early church, uh-huh. the whole thing is all about communal life and then... Yeah. Uh, and where you draw the and, for the book. Yeah, living in community, how 
Yeah. And, you know, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, you know, that story. And Jesus just built community wherever he went. He didn't just walk around by himself. He had the disciples and he had other people, followers and and women that were around him. So he wasn't alone. He wanted to be alone many times because he was so tired. He was grieving the, the death of John the Baptist. There were other events happening. So he retreated, but then there was always a community that he had. Um, the disciples certainly were with him. So when we see the example of Jesus and how Jesus kind of reached out to those who were not part of the community, for example, the sinful woman that he reached out to, the Samaritan woman, when the the woman that was hemorrhaging for, was it 10 years or 12 years? I can't, I just preached on it two weeks ago. I can't remember. Was it 10 years? 12. (laughs) Yeah, 12 years. You know, he, he didn't tell the woman to go away. He says, your faith has made you heal. So how he kind of reaches out to people and, you know, it's not just about one individual, but it is a community. He wants to break down the barriers. He wants to welcome those who were initially kind of pushed aside and who were scorned or thought, you know, they were bad people. You know, the lepers, when we think about um, the lepers that were kind of cast away and they weren't part of the community, they weren't allowed to be part of our community, you know, they had to live separately. Jesus healed them. That, you know, reaching out and healing them, that's amazing. Because I always think about who are lepers today, those who we kind of cast away, and we do it to certain people. Uh, you know, particularly here in the States, we, we do it to foreigners, we do it to Muslims, you know, we do it to those who we don't like. And, and Trump is, you know, in the center of this and he wants to ban certain people, etc. He criticizes people. But we really need to see what is happening in our society. And when there is evilness in our society, when we are throwing people away and, and saying, you're not welcome into our community, into our churches. There's something wrong. And I know, um, you know, you're part of the Presbyterian Church in Canada, and I was part of it. And in a way, I still am, you know, dealing with the human sexuality issue. You know, I think that's so painful to see. Um, you know, I'm here in the U.S. I'm part of the Presbyterian Church USA, and we've um, said full inclusion. And when I see other denominations still struggling with it, it is painful because it reminds me of how uh, we still like to exclude people. We think some of us are better than others. Um, God loves only certain people of certain gender, of certain sexuality, of certain race. We keep doing this over and over again. We've done it throughout history. That has caused so much pain in our history. You know, when we did, um, when Christians, um, you know, slaughtered people, I forget what, um, you know, throughout our history, we've, um, burn people at the stake. And we've done a lot of horrible things. And I think we have to kind of sit back and kind of reflect on the things that we have done wrong and what we are doing wrong today and be convicted that God loves all of human beings. God created all of us. And so it is really, how are we going to work towards healing this brokenness that's so present, not just here in America and in Australia and in Canada, but around the world, Mm -hmm. it's evident. So you do, you, you mentioned already of nine practices in the book that uh, you talk about nine practices that heal our broken humanity. Um, I'm just going to list them. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Imagine, Cause I don't have them in front of me yeah, right there you now. Go. So church you. is number one. Uh, then renew lament, repent together, relinquish power, restore justice, 
reactivate hospitality, reinforce agency, reconcile relationships, and then recover life together. Um, now, the, that list is not immediately obvious. I mean, even, even as you read through the book, um, and we don't have time to go into all of them, we'll maybe talk mm-hmm. about one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. But generally, can you, can you say a little bit about how you, were, how you came to, to those nine ways for a church to move forward uh, living as the new humanity in Jesus Christ? Well, um, you know, yeah, it is not obvious. And we were, you know, when the publisher, when we're working with the publisher, we were wondering, um, he said, oh, get rid of all the R's. He says, um, just label them differently. And um, particularly Graham um, insisted that we keep it. And I actually thought it would be good to keep. So we can kind of remember them all because they all begin with an R. So, you know, we're beginning... um, with the church and then we kind of go through um the various uh, i don't want to we don't want to kind of say steps because you don't have to do this in order mm-hmm. um i think you kind of work through this as you are convicted but some of them you know the lament needs to happen near the beginning but anyway these nine things um you don't have to go through each of these stages but they're kind of laid out to kind of help us and be convicted of convict us of the sinfulness that exists and how then we can learn, we can work towards embracing one another. So, you know, one of my books is called Embracing the Other and I kept using embrace throughout. I don't know. I think it's because that other book is still in my head, but really what does it really mean once you are convicted of the problems that um, you are part of and, and the problems that have been created either through you or the community that you belong to or the church how then can we work towards embracing um, those who are so different from us? So, you know, these are the nine kind of um, chapters kind of broken down. And I thought we thought it was important to kind of uh, work through these because at the end, you know, we begin with the church and we end with life together. What does it mean to live uh, you know, together in community. As I said in the beginning of the podcast, we, we can't live by our, we're not living by ourselves no matter how much we want to. And, and many days I wish I don't have to deal with anybody, uh, with students or people that I work with or even the churches or people in the community. You don't want to deal with them because they, sometimes it's a headache, but we can't run away. We, ha- we live with one another and we have to learn to live with one another. You know, I'm Korean. I was born in Korea and, you know, Korea has been in the late news much of this year because of um, North Korea and um, Trump and Kim Jong-un, um, you know, first last year um, tweeting at each other and now um, meeting in person. I think when I see that, and next week I'll be going to Korea. And when I think about just that example, if we can't live with Koreans, either South Koreans or North Koreans, we are in big trouble because in, you know, in this day and age, war means not just Koreans will die, but Chinese, Japanese, Americans, Canadians, so many people are going to die and suffer. So, you know, it is a real question. What does it mean to live uh, together, this life together? And that means 
not setting up these barriers and the walls, not hating one another, not being suspicious and not uh, wanting to kill each other, but really unpacking what it means to love and to embrace, what it means to take the first step. You know, I, you know, I'm I'm the one who to criticize Trump the most because of what he's been doing, but I think. Uh, one thing I will have to give him credit for is his risk taking and taking that step and reaching out to Kim Jong Un. Mm-hmm. I know he's getting a lot of criticism with Americans right now, but actually, in in I think the, the stakeholders here are actually Koreans, and many of the Koreans living in South Korea and um, in the diaspora are very happy that the the talks are starting, uh, the peace talks that. The step forward, um, it just began, and there's going to be a lot of steps, a lot of hoops to to cover. But at least it, the the process has begun, and you know, with all the criticism, I think that's important. That um, the step of peacemaking, the step of reaching out, because that is all about living together. You know, we can demonize one another as much as we want, but we have to be able to live. So we got to stop demonizing one another. Uh, we demonize Muslims here in the U.S. too. We demonize um, those of different sexuality. We sometimes demonize women, etc., uh, etc. Et you see it out played out in public. We have to stop this. We have to be convicted of these problems. We can't keep doing that. Social media picks it up, and you know a lot of people's lives are destroyed when you start demonizing one another. We have to kind of not participate in this, but rather participate in hospitality, participate in what it means to welcome those um, to our table. Uh, how What does it mean to fellowship with one another, break bread with one another? So that's what the book is trying to do. We don't have all the answers, but we want to kind of raise these points and and leave it open for discussion and hope, you know, perhaps we might uh, write a second volume after all the feedback from everybody around the world. You know, it, I'm really happy that it was kind of written across the ocean because we've got these different perspectives um, and that, that adds richness to the dynamic of the problems and the context that exists because certainly every country has different problems. Everyone is dealing with different issues. But overall, you know, at the core, these are similar issues, you know, fearing one another and hating one another, not welcoming one another. So we have to somehow overcome and see what Christ has done when, when Jesus walked on earth. You know, he didn't build these walls. He, he actually broke down the walls, you know, the wall between the, the, the Israelites um, and the Samaritans and the woman, etc. So I think if anything, we have to kind of uh, walk in the steps of Jesus and try to become who Jesus wants us to become. Yeah, I found myself at one point in the book. I wish I'd uh, I wish I'd marked it now because I am I'm, I'm kind of just operating off memory. But there was a one point in the book where I was thinking, "Oh my goodness, they're saying this is really controversial, cutting edge. This is speaking so directly to our world today, and some people are really going to not like what you're saying about yeah. race and about uh, gender and about um, kind of the state of our world. And I realized that the part that I was reading, you were directly quoting from the Bible. <laughs> like, oh, this is this is really volatile stuff here. And it was like a full, like 
th- uh-huh. almost three quarters of a page that was okay. just like I hope the readers can quote. find that thought, page. Oh my goodness. Oh, right. All right. This is right in the Bible. Yeah, we we use a lot of scripture. There's you know, one of, of the scripture. criticisms that theologians get all the time is we don't use enough scripture, but in many of my books we use scripture. And to, you know, give the context also, you know, Graham is in a more kind of conservative um school. I'm in a progressive school. Mm-hmm. So always there was that push and take, how much can he do, you know, within his own limitations and convictions. And, you know, we were going back and forth. I'm more freer, but he was more restrictive, but he understood that some of these need to be shared. And, you know, he, he's so convicted and he is, he's, he, he's such a wonderful man because even at that school, it's not just like a white Australian school. There's a lot of Koreans, um, from Korea that are studying and a lot of other diverse students. And the same here in the U.S., you know, we're becoming more and more diverse. So in this, um, you know, time of diversity and, you know, racism is so rampant everywhere, even in our churches, how are we going to deal with this? So I just, I was really thankful that I got to do this book with Graham. Uh, You know, when you decide to do one, you never know how it's going to be, even the writing process. I've written several books. I wrote one with my daughter. I wrote one with another friend of mine. And then the one that'll be coming out um, in the fall is another co-written. Sometimes you never know what you're going to get into because sometimes you may disagree on these certain points that are so important to the book, but Graham and I agreed on all the things. And, um, you know, we were both convicted how important this is, um, both in the Australian context and here in the North American context, uh, because uh, we are essentially dealing with the similar problems. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is biblical, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bible, if we read it carefully, really does convict us and, and pushes us to become the new humanity. That's where the basis of all the whole book is from, that we really need to become new and new creatures in Christ, which is hard to do because sometimes we don't want to be new. We just like mm-hmm. our old selves. We like our old habits. We like to maintain the status quo. But this mm-hmm. thing really convicts us that we can't just be happy with the status quo. We, we need to challenge ourselves and challenge the community and our churches. Some churches are very good at this and others are not. Mm-hmm. So, um, I hope. Yeah, and um, I, mm-hmm. I think some people as well may hear something like racism is rampant, and they might immediately think, "Well, I'm actually, not where I am." Mm-hmm. But maybe their church actually isn't engaging, and in, in it at all. Like I, yeah. I think. Oh, me, I hear that all it, the time. Right. It made I, me think. I'm actually. Mm-hmm. I'm a white male. Um, grew up in Canada, mm-hmm. and like. I, I feel like I'm not actually the person to answer that question for my congregation. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think, mm-hmm. I don't think there's racism in our congregation, but mm-hmm. I actually need to go and ask the women in our church mm-hmm. who are from Ghana, mm-hmm. um, uh, that question. Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. like, I, I don't think it's the white people, at least in the North American context, it's not the white people mm-hmm. that need to be answering the question, whether there's racism in their church or not. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, there are those people who are people of color who say, oh, I don't feel much racism. But it's not a matter of feeling it or experiencing it every day. It's the fact that it's systemic. It's like a woman, you know, sexism is is present. It, 
you may not feel it or experience it every day as a woman, but the systems are set up that it's against us. So the pay inequality between the man and the woman exists. The fact that women have to fear of sexual violation or sexual assault is higher than men walking around alone. So these systems of oppression are are present and we somehow have to kind of break it down. So even those People of color who may say they don't experience it, you know, not where they live. I've heard that many times, but it's systemic and it's, that's what we need to kind of break down and be convicted of and try to change in our society and in our churches. Mm-hmm. So even if, uh, and, and I like your example that you shouldn't ask the white person, but ask the people of color, that needs to be done too, because some of us may experience it, but we are too afraid to share it publicly or say it to a minister because we feel like, oh, then it's some criticism of the church, et cetera. I don't want people to get mad at me. I'm afraid. Some people are are introverts. So even if people don't voice it, it's systemic and it's present and we need to do something about this. Yeah. Well, I really wanted to ask you about the Repent Together chapter Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you said there isn't necessarily an order to the chapters, but I kind of feel like uh, you do have re- a lament chapter, renew lament, mm-hmm. and then uh, repenting together is right after that. And I kind of feel like you, and you did say lament maybe should be early. That seems to be an order there to to have lament very early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I say, um, you know, the order, I, I didn't, what I meant was, you don't have to do all this always. Right. Um, we have a flow chart too. Um, it's it's more of a guidance. But I think the lamenting and the repenting needs to happen at the at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. I think it it needs to so that you can move on to building the relationship and what it means to live together. But I don't want to be like so rigid and say, oh, you got to do. You know, we have to reimagine church first and then sure. lament next and so forth. I, you know. I'm I'm always a free-flowing person, so that's well, why, what I meant by... Why you know, is lament to, so important? Because you have to be kind of convicted and uh, in your heart understand that this is something wrong. I think we as Christians don't lament much. Um, lamenting, uh, we need to do as individuals and as... Um, as a community, there's a whole book of lamentations that we don't really focus on that. Right. But it is a practice... Um, that was done in the Old Testament, that we kind of cry out to God in our brokenness. I think that um, we don't usually use that vocabulary vocabulary in our Christian kind of um, discourse, and it's not part of our worship. Like, I think as a Presbyterian, we always have, uh, you know, repentance or the confession, always. Mm. But there's rarely a time of lamenting. So we kind of wanted to put that in at the beginning um, and we share examples. Um, I wrote one on Sandra Land and, and Graham wrote another one of how we are to lament. And it's really to be convicted of um, the problems and the sins and to really cry out to God. I think that's important um, thing that is kind of missing in our churches. I think though, um, those who work on reconciliation um, so I've done various talks um, at the Center for Reconciliation at Duke um, University. They have a huge center and there's various activities. I think those who kind of 
are really tuned into reconciliation and uh, what it means to reconcile um, have uh, a more in-tune understanding of lament better. But I think for the rest of us who don't really deal with uh, reconciliation issues, kind of forget about lamenting. So we wanted to put that in at the beginning. That's our second chapter after reimagining church, Mm. um, that it is very vital to kind of um, give lament and, and to cry out to God. I think it's actually really freeing. I think mm-hmm. lament is a freeing practice. Um, and I, where I, and I actually think it's a hopeful practice. I think some people can think it's actually about despair, but I don't think it is. Um, because I, for me, I feel like lament is often really useful when there's a situation and I cannot yet see how anything good could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And maybe something good will happen. Like maybe there's reconciliation possible. Maybe there's something that's going to happen later. But mm-hmm. lament is a useful way when I am despairing. To, like it gives me hope that there's laments in the Psalms, that there's laments in the Bible. Oh, yeah. That uh-huh. I can then go, oh, right. Yeah. It's okay to just give this to God and mm-hmm. say, I don't know. Like this is hor- like I, this, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. Um, and I think we, in Western culture, I think we, we have, we might have those feelings, but we're really quick to shut those off and mm-hmm. then, and then just kind of try to figure out how do I not look at that anymore? Cause mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to actually go there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, there's school shootings. I think there's a huge percentage of the population that just want to say, well, I'm just going to look away. Mm-hmm. Um, or it occupies the news cycle for for a bit and we all pay attention for a while. We don't really know what to do with that. And so mm-hmm. we just move on. Yeah. Um, rather so, than yeah. actually. Mm-hmm. And so we, we forget about how powerful lamenting is. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I think the American church shies away from lamenting and the American individual does. But I think, you know, it's about, Lamenting is also about regretting and mourning. So I think that should kind of be part of our experience because we do live with a lot of mourning and regret. I think your example of the school shooting is good. And so, you know, the Old Testament has a lot of lamentations or lamenting. So they practiced it. I think it's something that we kind of need to pick up again and and practice this understanding of lament. I think it's good for the soul too. So um, I think, and in in the book we say, you know, that has to happen before the repentance. I think so. So we mourn our loss and, um, you know, how, you know, black people are shot or um, their lives are in danger. The exploiting of women's bodies. So there is a systemic injustice that, that is happening so we want to lament and mourn and grieve the loss of lives and of bodies, et cetera. And then, so then you move into uh, repentance in the following chapter. Mm-hmm. And can, can you take us through what repentance really is? Like you have four stages that you talked about in the book, conviction, contrition, commitment, and change. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if I've ever heard that before. Yeah, so I'm glad because we don't want this book to be just uh, uh, something that you already know. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, um, 
So the first step, the conviction, um, you know, we want to recognize that one or more of our attitudes and behaviors are wrong. So, you know, that we are broken and that there is damage done either to ourselves or to others. So I think that's the first step, the, the recognition, the conviction in our hearts that something has happened that is wrong. Um, you know, when I talked about Han, that is the recognition that you have sinned against the other. The second um, stage is the contrition, the lamenting, and the regret. So you've committed um, these sins, and and you want to re- you want to participate in regret. You know, some sins. I think the the conviction is important because, as we were discussing at the beginning of the uh, podcast, sometimes we don't think that racism is sin or sexism is sin. But after the conviction, then you want to regret, how did I participate in this? How did I oppress um, those who are of different color or sexuality? So, How did um, I not stand up when I saw something going on? Yeah. And when we think about the Holocaust, you know, they came for certain people and they came for everybody. And the last, you know, they came for me because you didn't stand up. So I think it's important that we kind of you know, recognize, and then we kind of lament and we regret. The third stage is um, the commitment. So you turn away, so you kind of commit to this renewal. Um, uh, We want to honor God. Um, We want to kind of build new uh, behaviors or postures in how we live. So it's the changing of our minds and our attitudes. I think that's very important. So just giving the example of racism, then we want to then understand that racism is wrong. Um, How can I then fight this racism? How, if we look at the whole of scripture, you know, if God created all of us and we are all, you know, to love one another, I think one thing that we forget is, is this two simple, um, two simple commandments in the Bible. One is to love God with all our hearts, mind, and soul. And the other one is to love our neighbor as our, uh, as ourself. So loving our neighbors doesn't mean those who are educated the same as us or who have the same income or who look like me. Neighbor means everybody. And, you know, and now we're living in such a global world. Neighbor is Canadians and the Mexicans and the Africans and the South Americans. How are we going to love them? So, um, you know, we want, we want to um, be committed into changing something. So actually then that leads to the fourth stage of change. So we practice new ways of being in the world. So once we kind of um, go through recognizing that that racism is wrong, then what laws can be set up today to um, fight this racism? You know, Trump put in the Muslim ban. When I think about that, I just, it's so painful because you know, this is something that Trump did, but in 1882 in the U.S., in American history, that was the first ban of any ethnic group, and that was a Chinese exclusion ban. So no Chinese were allowed to come into the United States. From 1882, Congress passed that, and they said they're going to put it in just for 10 years only. After 10 years, they renewed it again and again. 
So until 1943, no Chinese were allowed to come in. There was a fear of Chinese. They were going to take their jobs. There was this yellow fever. There's something wrong with the Chinese people. Um, they're going to give us disease. All these negative attitudes towards Chinese. So from 1882 to 1943, that's a long time. So during that time, the Chinese um, had to carry papers around. They weren't allowed to buy property without permission. They weren't allowed to get married without permission. And those um, who remained, if they wanted to um, leave the country, like visit family, you know, they had to get permission. It was so difficult because some of them may not be able to come back in. So there were all these restrictions placed on the Chinese and people hated them. You know, uh, there was this terrible racism against the Chinese. So the Chinese were never allowed to vote until 1943. You know, when we think about that, they were never considered citizens. This is this is wrong. This is racism put into law. And when we think about the Japanese who are interned, that was somehow law. You know, during the World War II, you know, Americans were fighting with um, Italians and the Germans, but then they decided only to put the Japanese in these camps, which were horrible. They lost everything. They lost their land, their home, their furniture, everything that they owned. So, uh, you know, when we th- when some people just throw around racism, oh, it's no big deal. It is a big deal because if they can do this to Chinese and if they can do this to um, the Japanese, they may do it to another group. And this is very scary. And that's, you know, when we think about the Holocaust, that was racism. So we have to repent and, and make this commitment to change. And sometimes it includes law. Sometimes it includes somehow how our churches are run and how we kind of practice uh, welcoming the stranger and welcoming the refugee. Churches today in the U.S. are so scared of the refugees. You know, they're like, oh, they're all, uh, what are they? They're all terrorists. You know, they're going to come and destroy us. They're going to kill us. You know, they're going to kill everybody. You know, the refugees go through this strict, you know, examination process. You know, we don't just bring them in. You know, it's so strict. You know, they're, and people are still afraid. So it's not just this uh, societal problem. It's even with our within our churches we don't want them you know christians are speaking out against them you know we christians are saying yeah the muslim ban is good so there is a lot of problems so this the lament i mean the the repentance you know hopefully with those four steps will help people to recognize the problem and that how we have participated in it or by omission that we have participated in it and we need to do something about this problem Mm-hmm. And I don't want my my listeners to think this is only an American problem. I think we've done that a bit with with Australia too, but Canada is certainly not off the hook. Um, yeah, um, mm-hmm. I know we we're both Canadians, so we kind of feel yeah. like oh, Canadian Canada is this nice place. Um, and <laughs> Canadians are known for um, being nice and saying please mm-hmm. and thank you and saying sorry before they've even done. <laughs> but um, but I mean, I, the history of, uh, of First Nations people in Canada and um, yeah. Particularly the way the government mm-hmm. and the churches, uh, you know, yeah. most residential schools. It's painful. Um, a few weeks ago, I was, uh, or maybe a month ago, I was out visiting uh, the Kenora Fellowship Center uh, just in northwestern Ontario. And they took us to the site of a residential school, a former residential school. There's there's not much there anymore, but there's a memorial, there's some memorial sites and we went up on the top of the hill to this memorial site and uh, looked out on this beautiful lake um, just there. And I realized this is ex- the exact spot that my family used to come for vacation 
Um, so we have some family friends who own property on an island that I could see right from that hill. And, um, and so when I was three years old was the first time that I went to that spot and went on the dock and, um, and I looked at the, at the plaque and the residential school had only closed, I think three or four years before I had been there. Um, I thought, Oh my goodness, you know, this is, and I knew, like, I knew on my head that Mm -hmm. the schools were operating much longer than, than many people think Mm -hmm. some into the 1980s. Mm. Um, and so this was in the 1970s, but when it was there and I was in that spot and I realized I was here when I was a little kid and I was just told, um, oh, the Indians uh, let us use their parking lot. And isn't that nice? Mm -hmm. That was all I was told, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I didn't learn anything about the history of what was going on in Canada Mm -hmm. until Mm -hmm. I was actually in seminary in my twenties. So it's yeah, a, and, it, and it takes a long time. Yeah, and it happened in Australia too. I think one of the good movies, it's not a documentary, but one of the good movies that illustrates what happened in Australia, very much similar to what happened in the US and, to, and in Canada, is called The Rabbit Proof Fence. Mm. I don't know if you've seen it, no. but it, it traces the lives of three young girls who were taken into the residential school. Mm. It's you, It'll make you cry. It doesn't matter how tough one is. Just the pain of what, Christ, in the name of Christianity, what we did in these residential schools is horrible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, nobody's off the hook. I think we've participated in systemic racism. You know, we've, in this podcast, I've kind of focused on racism, but there's other problems that we've all participated in. That's just one example that I kind of focused on. But I think, you know, there's a lot of other things that we are doing wrong and we need to be convicted of and we need to commit to change so that we can kind of work towards um, building uh, healing our broken humanity. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that the readers and the listeners uh, will kind of um, be convicted of how we participate um, in in this sin, um, as Graham and I wrote it, we were convicted of our own. So, um, and I hope that it'll be a healing process for many people. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing I really appreciated the book, like you don't pull any punches in the book. Um, like you're you're okay with with calling something sin, and mm-hmm. uh, and in some ways that's rare. Um, but then also providing a process or a way to actually engage with what's really going on in our world and, and making a connection to our lives and our churches. I think that's done really, really well. And so people, if they do want to really engage with what does it mean to actually, uh, in fact, heal our broken humanity, how, how do we, how do we even take any steps when sometimes often it might just feel like, well, I can't do anything, so I'll do nothing. But I think your book really provides a path for there. There is a way to begin conversations mm-hmm. um, to actually engage with what's going on in the world and see that Jesus can, in fact, redeem these things and, and reconciliation mm-hmm. is possible. Yeah. Uh, I really like that you held that out. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Now, I appreciate that. We're actually over time because okay. it's been so good. Um, but I ask, I ask every guest who, who comes on or I try to ask um, just a, a little thing about what your own personal spiritual practice looks like. Because um, mm-hmm. normally we talk about uh, personal spiritual practices on. on okay. So I'm going to have to have on you. On your Yeah, you have to have me back. Um, but is there anything that you would want to, is there anything that you do in your personal life that's a spiritual practice that you find meaningful? Maybe it connects I, to what we're talking about. 
Yeah, I think prayer is uh, meaningful. So um, that's one of the practices I do. And, you know, we try to do it as a family too. Hmm. So I think um, prayer and it's different forms of prayer, which I can talk about uh, at another time. But I think prayer is something um, that helped me and I hope that it will help um, your listeners and, and the readers too. So that's one thing that's been very important to me that I would urge so many of us, you know, we all live busy lives. You know, we're raising kids, we're working, we're doing this and this and this. But I think prayer is something that needs to, um, that we need to hold on to and that we need to engage in all the time. Hmm. That's been one thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's kind of like a teaser for uh, the next time you come back on this podcast. Okay. Grace for for doing this. I really appreciated our conversation. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. You're a wonderful host and uh, um, I look forward to coming back again. So thank you so much. And I hope all the listeners get a chance to read um, Healing Our Broken Humanity or any of my other books. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You can always go to spiritualityforordinarypeople.com and you can find all of the old episodes and all of the show notes for those episodes. Also, you can find the podcast on iTunes and I would love it if you could leave a review there. That means so much to me and it helps the podcast become more visible so that others can find these interviews. Thanks again for listening. Take care.